Good morning, church. How are you? Good morning. I, uh, I don't normally come up here uh, at a pulpit with something to sip on, but if you'll forgive me, I uh, think I've come down with something in the air, so I'm going to try not to sip too loudly or slurp into my microphone or anything like that. Um, it has been a joy to be with you, though. We've uh, really enjoyed our time here this week, and uh, I was just talking with uh, Brother, Brother Matt as we were praying before the service just how awesome it is as uh, believers in Christ, we can go anywhere and we can feel at home. And uh, that's truly what we, we have been f- felt so welcomed here uh, in just our short time here at this church, and we are so grateful for that. And, I, and that, I, we owe that all to the grace and love of Jesus Christ, and I, I'm so thankful for that. And so uh, kudos to you for making us feel at home, away from home. Um, turning your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 1. You might already be there. Revelation chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, um, but whenever a speaker gets up and says those words, turn to Revelation, I tend to get a little bit nervous. <laughs> uh, I tend to get a little bit uneasy and squirm in my pants a little bit just because I don't really know what they're going to say or what they're going to do or how they're going to take the text before them. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in some of those certain situations, but sometimes speakers like to use Revelation, I think, to kind of impress you or wow you with their ability to sort of connect the dots of the Bible or to sort of uh, somehow unpack all the mysteries of the scriptures or whatever. They, they usually do this through, uh, you know, saying this thing means this thing or deducing what all these images are and what they mean. And sometimes I think, you know, those conspiracy three maps where they have all these dots connecting one another. I think a lot of times uh, some speakers approach Revelation in this way. And, and somehow they end up proving, you know, that, you know, Putin is the Antichrist or, you know, Russia is going to attack us or something like that. Um, but it leads me to ask this question, you know, why is Revelation in the Bible? Why do we have it? Why are we given it in our scriptures as something for us to benefit from? You know, in verse 3, we read that blessed is he that readeth these words. So obviously these words are here for a purpose, and the ones who read these words will come away blessed. But why do we have this book? Is it really to predict the future? Is it really to give us a sense of what's to come? And perhaps in some ways it is, but I would say no, that Revelation is not a prediction of the future. We like to pounce on those things, right? We we pounce on predictions of the future because we want to sort of uh, have that sense of control, right? We think that if we can only know what's going to happen, then we can have peace. Then we can be at ease. We don't have to worry. We just got to know what's going to happen. So if we can just figure it out, if we can, you know, uh, become Sherlock Holmes and delve into the mysteries of this book, we can figure out what's going to happen, and then we can uh, live carefree lives. That's why, you know, fortune tellers exist, (laughs) because we are so curious about the future that we have to make sure that we can know the future, so then we can feel in control and we can feel at rest. But regardless, I think, you know, sometimes when speakers try and delve into the, the sort of end times scriptures, like those in Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation itself, 
we tend to listen to those more because we want that sense of control. We want that, um, they also, those passages, they sometimes feel like glimpses behind God's curtain, so to speak. They feel like God's kind of letting us in on a secret. You know, like here it is, here's a little secret of the future and you can uh, now rest in that. But I think uh, most of the times, for me, readers of Revelation kind of fall in one or two camps. The first camp I, I often think of is the dogmatic reader. This, the dogmatic reader is a reader of this book who, uh, who is very confident and self-assured of what he is reading and his interpretation of it. Or there's also the dreadful reader. This reader is confused and, and perhaps even frightened by what they read because they don't really understand what they're reading. There's so many images and figurative language in this book that it can often be quite scary. But I think both the dogmatic reader and the dreadful reader of Revelation both kind of miss the, 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 overall, the, the overall purpose of the book itself. Because... Yes, I believe that there are things we can know about the future, and Revelation reveals those to us. But this book, these 22 chapters that close out our scriptures, are, are not sort of a manual for us to predict the future. That's not why they're here. Revelation isn't a secret code we have to crack in order to figure out what's happening next. The very purpose of Revelation is found in the first five words. The first five words of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book shows us, exposes to us a very different image and light of Jesus Christ than we have ever seen before. I like to say it's Jesus in high contrast. It is Jesus at the fullness of his might and of his glory. And it lays bare, it, it unveils, it exposes, it reveals a new side to Jesus, and that is Jesus as king. It's not just Jesus as savior, it's Jesus as savior king. This is why G John is writing these words. In verse three again, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. I think it's important to remember uh, before we get to our text also, that Revelation is a letter. It's not just a big doctrinal book or a thesis of future events. It's a letter, uh, as it says in verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. These are the churches that he would eventually write letters to. You can find those letters in chapters 2 and 3. But overall, this whole book is a letter in and of itself that John was writing. He was writing to people um, that were going through intense uh, early first century persecution. As we know, as it says in verse 4, this is written by the Apostle John. We know him as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. He was the youngest of the Apostles, and he is now exiled in his older age on the Isle of Patmos. It says in verse 9, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God 
and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was exiled there by a Roman emperor named Domitian. Domitian was a vicious and authoritative ruler who, uh, during his rule, marginalized the Senate, giving him sole authority over the Roman Empire. He was cruel. He was uh, one who uh, thought himself as a god. And in that way, he sort of followed in uh, Nero's footsteps in violence towards Christians. And so if you think about it, for 60-odd years, if you believe that Jesus uh, died and was ascended in about the 30s AD, and this is now in 95 AD, uh, around 60-odd years after Jesus' resurrection, there's generations of believers who are growing up in persecution for their very faith. And this is why John is writing. John is writing to encourage these churches that yes, this persecution has come, and yes, it might perhaps persist, but just know who is on your side. It is the Savior King. It is the one who has ordained everything in its time. He is the one who is on your side. And I think for that reason, just as it said, blessed is he that readeth, I think we find two very quickly, two quick uh, points of comfort for us I think that John was making to uh, these churches, but also I think comforts for us as well. In verses 5 and 6, I think we find, first of all, the comfort of salvation. Look at it again. It says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He gives very clearly a statement about the salvation that Jesus was proclaiming. And that now John is now proclaiming to these churches. Is that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega of our salvation. He's the beginning of it and he is the ending of it. As it says in verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This is who Jesus is. He gives us the comfort of salvation, that he is the Alpha and Omega of it. He's the beginning of our salvation, and he's the ending of our salvation. He clears the way for us to be saved, and he finishes all the conditions so that we might be saved. This is the culmination of the entire Bible, is right here is that the revelation of Jesus Christ is the story in all 66 books of your scriptures. It all points back to him. It all points back to this Jesus who is Alpha and Omega. And I think very interestingly, uh, right here we can see that Jesus is both the giver of this revelation and he's the subject of this revelation. He's giving a revelation about himself. <coughs> and I think what's interesting to note is that the author of our faith, the beginning of it, the beginning or beginner of it, Jesus, he didn't leave the end of it for us to finish. If you think about it this way, that, that Jesus' work of salvation on the cross wasn't partially done. It wasn't as if he went 99% of the way and left the last remaining percentage up to you to make sure that you did your part. Think about Jesus' last words on the cross. 
He, he doesn't say as he's dying there, bleeding his last and breathing uh, his last. He doesn't say, there, now you do the rest. What does he say? He says, it is finished. He is the alpha and omega of our salvation. And we who put our faith in him have the glory and the comfort in knowing that that salvation is finished. It is complete in him. As it says, he is our faithful witness. Witnessing to the Father, the perfect example of righteousness, the perfect uh, uh, righteous substitute on behalf of sinners. And very uh, quickly, God's plan of salvation doesn't require the least amount of your input. (laughs) If you could think of it that way. There's no room in the salvation of your soul for your own righteousness. That's what I love about what this teaches. If Jesus is the alpha and omega of our salvation in the gospel, is that he pays for every part of it. Every one of your sin is paid for by that very blood of Jesus Christ. And I love how it says in verse 5, again, that last phrase, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The very blood that we drew from the cross is the very blood that covers our sins. The very blood that was spilt by the Savior on that ratty Roman cross so many ages ago is the blood that covers all of our iniquities and washes us white as snow. This is our glorious comfort of salvation. I like to say it this way, that Jesus paid the check of our debt with his own blood. If, you know, if you've ever been out to a restaurant and someone picks up the tab for you, there's this almost like gut instinct that you want to try and pay your little part of it, right? Oh, you can't accept that free gift. It's too good. It's, it's too, let me at least leave the tip for the waitress. But in that way, if you think about it that way, if we try and give our input into God's salvation, that's almost trying to pick up the tab of something that Jesus has already covered. (laughs) You're trying to give your little input and pick up the tip on something that Jesus has already paid for in full. This is the alpha and omega of our salvation. This is Jesus' comfort of our salvation. The ransom of sinners was paid by this Savior King's very own blood. This is the Christ, the King of our salvation. But also, secondly, very quickly, look at verse 8. Because not only do we have the comfort of salvation, secondly, we have the comfort of sovereignty. Look at verse 8. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which is to come. Which was, excuse me, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Here, uh, John is writing and he gives a very clear indication that Jesus, the same Jesus who is Savior, is Jesus who is sovereign over everything. His word at the end, at that last, that last word of verse 8, Almighty, is not an unintentional word or it's not an accidental word. It's not something that he just chose out of thin air. It's actually very uh, significant. Uh, because uh, as Domitian, this emperor who uh, exiled Paul, or excuse me, John to this island of Patmos, uh, he was uh, calling himself uh, the, uh, an almighty emperor. 
He was calling himself a god almost. And so right here, John is throwing in the very face of the person who exiled him, who is truly almighty. Because this word right here is a, is a Greek, Greek word, which means one who holds sway over all things, not just a little Roman empire. It's one who holds sway and sovereignty over every single thing that happened in all of life. So therefore, he's saying that this risen Lord is a ruling Lord who is ruling over every single thing in this life. Not just small things. He's not just exiling people. He's ruling over everything. So Domitian's might was just puny and limited compared to this one that John calls the Almighty. And he can say this with confidence because he, uh, you might, if, you, if we were going to read verses 9 through 11 again, but it's almost as if John is saying, I know this uh, because I have seen him. Look at verse 9. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. So he sees this vision and then in verse 12, he turns around to see who it is is talking to him. Look at verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment of, uh, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fire and brass, and they turned in a furnace, or excuse me, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So here we see this glorious, magnificent revelation of this Jesus Christ in full exposure. And we see here that Jesus is revealed as our priestly judge. That verse 13 where it talks about that garment wrapped around him, that sash. It was a typical thing that would uh, immediately represent someone who is a, a judge or a magistrate. And again, it points to Jesus' sovereignty. It points to his authority in ruling over the things of the world. Now, again, I think we could spend weeks delving into the symbolism of this passage, delving into perhaps parallel passages and, and to try and determine what each of these little images means, why it talks about brass and, and feet like undefined brass and such and such and so forth. But that's not where the comfort of this comes from. It doesn't come from knowing uh, what it means when it says that his feet burned as in a furnace. It actually comes from something smaller, but yet I think it's bigger too. It's in verse 18. It comes from a touch. Look at what it says. And when I saw him, I, I, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, 
saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, these things are going to happen and these things are going to come about, but I am the sovereign king. Don't worry. Fear not. I am the ruler of it all. You don't have to fear what's to come because I know what's going to come because I have already ordained what is to come. And I, I was thinking about this and thinking about the fact that this is the second time in John's life when he's been touched by a fully glorified Jesus. Did you know that? If you turn back with me really quick to Matthew chapter 17. Because I think it's important we see some of the parallels between Matthew 17 and Revelation 1 and John's own experience. Matthew 17 tells us, relates to us the account of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5 of Matthew 17. While he yet spake, it says, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, listen, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. That's almost the same exact Phrase in Revelation 1 where it says he fell as his, at his feet as dead. And Jesus came, verse 7, and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. You see, what he did there is what I think he's doing here and what I think he's doing for all of us for the rest of time is that he's touching us on our shoulder and saying, don't be afraid, fear not. I am the savior and I'm also the sovereign. I am a sovereign savior king and I have everything in the palm of my hands. And this comforting touch, I think, is sort of a metaphor for the rest of the book. He's almost as if saying, these are a, a, a multitude of things that are going to happen. And you may not understand them. We don't even understand them now after 2,000 years of having this book before us. And yet, I think what he's saying is don't be afraid. <laughs> I got this. You don't have to get it. I got it because I am the Savior. This is who our king is. This is King Jesus Christ who rules and reigns over our time. And it's the same Jesus that was slain on the cross is the same Jesus that is sovereign in the heavens for us. And the grace and peace that John talks about um, that would come to us during the end times doesn't come from knowing what's going to happen next. It comes from knowing the one who has already ordained what's going to happen next. It comes from knowing the one who has put everything in their time. Psalm 31.15 says this, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the, the hand of my enemies and from them that persecute me. That first phrase is important. My times are in your hand. Everything happens according to God's sovereign timing. And it comes from knowing this true sovereign king. That's why I think Revelation isn't a secret formula for knowing the future. It's a comfort for knowing the one who has ordained the future. 
It's comfort from knowing uh, what's going to happen because we don't have to know what's going to happen, but we can know and put our faith in the one who is already there and who has already ordained it. All the, the vivid language and the, the mysterious imagery of this book, it showcases the, the ultimate victory to come of Jesus, the Savior King, and his comprehensive control over all things. If you flip to the end of the book, Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, he repeats that statement, that declaration that he is Alpha and Omega. Revelation 22, 12 and 13, it says this. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is our Savior. This is our King. And basically what he's saying is, I've already won. You don't have to try and win. I've already won everything. You get to now joy, rejoice, and share in my victory. So therefore, revelation shouldn't make us stressed. Sometimes I think we, we can get that way if we try and read through these books and these chapters and read all the things that happen. We can get stressed by what we read. Actually, I think it should encourage us, as the psalmist says in Psalm 46, to be still and know that he is God, that Jesus is God. Jesus is the sovereign king over everything, and he is God, and we are not. And that simple little axiom, God is God, and we are not is so comforting to me because he has everything under control. These last days, these last years perhaps of our lives probably hasn't felt like God is in control. We hear of scandals and stories and all kinds of things that catch us uh, by surprise or perhaps catch us off guard or perhaps uh, show, uh, shock us. But we can be comforted and we can be stilled and we can be uh, at rest knowing that the one who is revealed here in these pages, the, the Savior King, is the one who holds everything in its place and is the one who has put everything in its place and in its time. And this Savior King will never abdicate his throne. <laughs> He'll never leave because he's on it forever. This is our Jesus, our Savior, and this is the comfort, I think, of what he gives to us. Let us pray.